go. Welcome to West Virginia and Commonplace. Today I have a special guest with me, and this guest has a story. This guest has a life. This guest has everything that could make a lifetime movie. Jules, please tell us who you are and let the audience know a lot about you. Uh, well, first off, I'm really glad that we get to do this. So first and foremost, thank you. Um, Jules, in a nutshell, I was born and raised in the 70s where uh, there wasn't a lot of awareness on uh, on. Uh, childhood trauma and alcoholism and, and things that happen kind of behind the scenes. And so uh, growing up in that environment, I then left the educational system very early with those childhood like behaviors and attempted to be a functional adult. And when that didn't work, the alcohol consumption continued to rise. Um, I got in the throes of alcoholism and I drank and drugged for 19 years. And then at the age of 35, I got sober and this is part two of my life and nothing about it resembles the first half of it. Um, so there's a lot of miracles, we'll call it. There's been a lot of hard work involved on my part. Um, and I'm thankful that I haven't had to drink or drug in 14 years. Okay. Okay. Now, one thing that we can all, we can all agree on now, I grew up in the eighties, eighties, okay. early nineties, mental health, awareness and stuff mental health was a stigma when we were coming up and and i want to honestly say that it probably wasn't until i was maybe like the late 1990s that we started caring a little bit more about mental health and then the middle of the 2000s people were like hey things are not all right mm -hmm. so did this kind of happen to you in in phases Absolutely. I remember when I had to go back and, you know, forgive and, and, you know, really just find that forgiveness on some of the things I had to realize that, you know, there weren't pamphlets laying out about alcoholism or domestic abuse. I mean, my mom didn't, she didn't really have a fighting chance because the options were so limited. So thank goodness we're on this part of that, you know, on that uh, evolution that we can talk about it today. Okay. Now, Jules, let's do this. We're going to do a little back and forth here. And I like to do this because I, I keep a little bit of journalistic integrity to the show. So tell us a little bit about Jules back then and then tell us about who Jules is today. I said I was raised in the 70s. The resources were very limited, and that also went with our household, our economic status, uh, the education. Um, we just, I think we are just pretty much blue collar getting by. And, and I mean, we never, we never went to bed hungry. We always had clothing on our back, but you know, that was pretty much the max of, of, of the potential. And so at that time, um, my mom remarried and she remarried into a very large family and I got lost. I was very small. Um, I was a very small boned person. I was very uh, frail, um, very pale white skin. Uh, I had very blonde hair and, and I just got lost. And, and now looking back, I realized that that was a blessing because I didn't want to be in the front in that spotlight. This, had, this family was not healthy. And so that was probably one of, one of my coping skills. 
So now, you know, we're catapults, you know, how many years later, how many generations, right? We're talking about how much things have changed. And you know, and now today, it seems like everything that I acquired growing up that was seen as negative, like a dropout, or I was promiscuous, or heaven forbid, an alcoholic. Now what's happened is all of those have now become gems. I, I, yes, I am a sober alcoholic. You know, I am sexually liberated. You know, I now understand that the power of being self-taught, you know, I did finish and go through some of the educational systems, but honestly, most of my learning was done outside the classroom. So there's been a lot of like almost a mirror of reflection of seeing life in a different just in a different perception. Okay. So the experiences with up and ups and down, they built you into a stronger person. So what experiences at 35 solidified you to who you are today? Oh God, that was a very low point in my life. <laughs> um, it may have been low, but I certainly wasn't weak and I definitely wasn't giving up. I was just circling the drain of this disease that I didn't know I had, and I didn't know how to cure it. So from that point until where I'm at today has been a process of removing those armors, all of the things that kept me protected, right? So I just like almost like laying down all of these weapons and tools that I thought were functional that would work. And now today I've been able to pretty much turn inward and, and really learn like, who am I? And, you know, like all the threats are gone today. And so I get to live large. I get to live authentically <laughs> You know, and I've already, you know, scaled way over from screaming it from the rooftops to now I found that nice, happy medium on the pendulum. But it's definitely a process. <laughs> OK, now you wrote a book, The Making of a Woman from the Inside Out. Mm. This book is edgy because I got to read through a bit of it. Um, and this is not your normal so sober story. Not at all. Far from it. Could you give the listeners just a little bit of insight into it and we'll tell them where they can find it at and uh, where they can get it so they can uh, get uh, consumed and educated at the same time by your book? And that is exactly what I wanted. You know, I have learned that we all have different stories, right? You, you know, the, you may have grown up in this part of the country. I grew up over here. You happen to be with that family. I was with this family. We all have these different stories, but ultimately we have the same language of the heart. You know, yes. I know what pain feels like and despair and loss and joy and excitement. I mean, we have all of those things in common. And so when Marlene and I sat down and started to put this book together, that was the thread that I led with. That's what I wanted people. I don't want people to read about a story about a girl who got sober. OK, there are millions of people who get sober. But what I wanted to do is make it that you could feel exactly what I was feeling as we went through the ups and downs and, and then better yet, when we get to the other side and, and where life has taken us today, 
you know, so you're right. It's, it's a very, it's, it's an impactful book. And I put a lot of effort into that. And I am, I'm grateful to have a team behind me because by all means, I, I'm, I survived the story. <laughs> I think that's, that, that was enough for me. So now I've like got this amazing team of people. And so um, where you can find the book is on its website. It's themakingofawoman.com. And I like to think of that kind of like as my mothership. I mean, it has everything from the events, where to buy the book. It actually has a Shopify in there now. So there's, you know, some VIP boxes in there and um, the numerous podcasts that I've been able to sit down and share and connect with other people. Those are all listed on there and along with future things that are, are yet to be in store. So, and of course, okay. all the social media links are on there too. <laughs> <laughs> now let's dig a little deeper into you. You got a different lifestyle that you, that you live. Can you tell us about your lifestyle a little bit? Just say so that we can get you more personable to the audience. Cause like, in tying into people, whenever we do these shows, you it starts off, we meet each other in a small pre-call that's like three or four minutes, and then we go from there. We just keep going you know, back and forth. Uh, you give me an answer, I'll give you a question. You may ask me a question later, and then I may give you an answer. But can you tell us about your lifestyle? I like, my husband and I call it the open-minded lifestyle. That's our relationship. It's very, very open-minded. Um, and I think this this manifested from the work I did when I got sober. Now, a snapshot at that phase right there, they told me that everything had to change in my life, people, places, and things. So here I have this opportunity, even though it was extremely painful, but to like rid myself of all of the crap, the excess, the dogma, this, all, all of that. And I really got to recreate. And so along that journey, we're sexual beings. So that was a big part of my liberation to learn, like, what do I like and what do I not like? And better yet, can I share that with somebody? Can I actually say those words and not feel shame or, you know, uh, embarrassment, you know? And so that is what this has grown to be is a, a partnership where we sit down at the table and almost talk about it, like almost as a grocery list. Like I need some of that. I would like some of that. This I'd like to taste. Let's try this dish, you know? And, and, and that's how we go about it. And so as we've, you know, catapulted off of that, we've, uh, I've been able to experience some amazing cultures around sexuality um, overseas. They, they, of course, we know view uh, sexuality in a whole different form and the, in the freedom that takes place and, and how much shame is not apparent when, when, all, when it's so much more open and so much more acceptable. So that's really what, what I've done is I just really... I turned inward and I just found like my authentic self and I ran with it. <laughs> okay. And, and like you said, the key things, communication, um, being clear and concise. Uh, we talk about this all the time and, and I, I use communication along with mental health. Um, growing up in Virginia, that's where I'm originally from. Um, in school, we were taught about these, uh, the ways you see light, you see light translucent, transparent, and opaque. Okay. Things that have to be transparent. 
That's what you're talking about with the communication. Uh, so many times in the early part of our life, and I can probably tell that this has happened to you, we stay in a translucent state, like it's halfway clear and we can see, and then we get to our dark periods where it's opaque and mm. you can't see. So in your lifetime, could you tell us a little bit about a translucent time, uh, opaque time, and then when things got transparent? Definitely. Because in the first stage, it was very, very it was very dark. I, I didn't see, we didn't talk about it. It wasn't spoken about. It was just, it was this dark space. And then of course, you know, then I'm growing into teenager. Right. And so then, I mean, now it's becoming a little, little like transparent, we'll say. And it, but it's still, it's, I'm not getting feedback. I'm not, it's not communication. It's not uh, energy exchanges. It's, it has a whole different meaning. And then ultimately, when I get to this stage, and I think, it, again, it's like I can stand behind my truth today. And I find that that actually draws in other people like me. You know, we can sit and talk about the weather or we can dive right into, you know, something, you know, something a little bit more substantial. And it's amazing how when you hold that space, you actually attract it. So it's a it's a win win. Okay. Now going back into the middle of life, because I like to go all across the board with it so that the audience can get a little excitement and then we can go back to excitement. We'll go to a linear part right now. Um, you know, life was a certain way until 35. What happened in that turning point? What was, you know, because we can use the the action that we're always taught, you know, you got to rise in action, the climax. What happened? that made you have to turn your life around and change it? It certainly was a was not a climax. <laughs> uh, let's just put that out there. You know, what it was is if you can kind of think about when you, you're putting 110% of the effort into something that you desperately want and you keep missing the mark. Like no matter what I tried, no matter how much effort I put into something, no matter how much I believed in it, it was not obtainable. And so you do this time after time after time, and the human body, the human soul starts to become very hopeless. You feel defeated. You feel then less worthy. And the whole cycle just really hits high speed. And so that's what it was like coming into that age of 35. You know, I was just, I was exhausted. I would say to my mom, I'm just tired of being tired. And that what happened is I was literally in the backseat of a car and I nonchalantly said, I wish I didn't drink so much to the two people in the front seat. And I kid you not, their little ears almost went up like antennas because both these women were in recovery. And within a 30 minute window, it was almost it, it was almost like I was trying to wake up from a dream. It happened so quickly, but it was still sore. Uh, so um, it was, it was so real to my core. 30 minutes. I was sitting in the rooms of recovery. I cried the entire hour. I don't even, I don't even know why I don't even, I don't, I didn't even have a topic to cry about. And I didn't really know anybody in the room. So it really just did not make a lot of sense. And at that point is really when I had, I think enough of a relief to have a little glimpse of hope that I didn't have to go back. 
And so I did exactly as people told me. I went to a meeting every day, religiously. I, you know, I just, I, I stopped drinking. I, I got rid of the friends I hung out with. I mean, I was desperate. And they call that the gift of desperation. And at that point in time, everything lined up. And I haven't had a drink since that point. Um, and I'm truly, truly, truly grateful to never have to go into that dark space again. Okay, so then you, you come out of this dark space and then you got to find something to fill that void. And you found something to fill that void. Obviously, we're about to jump into this. <laughs> um, you got into sculpting yourself. You, you have defined yourself with bodybuilding. Yes. You know, uh, there are many, if you think about the many elements of our being, right? There's the physical, the mental, you know, and then the psychological and the spiritual, all of those entities had to go through a, a, a phase of recovery. So that first year is really about just detoxing physically your body. You know, the second one is like the emotions. And then that third year is like the spiritual recovery. So for me, this just happened to be one more step of my physical being. I had always had a body image issue. I always struggled with it. And I learned that from my mom. And so yeah, I, when I turned 40, I said, you know what, listen, I'm, I'm tired of the way these thighs look. I'm just, I'm going to get a trainer. And so off to the, you know, the public gym, I went, I got a trainer. I worked with her for a little bit and then I, I moved on to the next trainer and she happened to be an IFBB uh, pro, a bodybuilder, body, bodybuilding pro, pro athlete. And, and I did exactly what I did when I first got sober. I did exactly as she told me. And so for that first full year, I did not eat anything besides what was on that meal plan. I didn't have any cheap meals. I drank my gallon of water a day. I was like desperate for this change. And that now has brought me to this year where I actually placed in the top three uh, at a national bodybuilding show in Pittsburgh. So that wasn't even on the wish list. I just wanted to fix my thighs. <laughs> but I'm telling you, it, it has been a miraculous experience to realize that I have that sort of connection with my body. Okay. And I was glad you did that because that's a good self-help. And just like writing a book, that's self-help, self-care. Um, how did you inspire yourself to keep going? Because the the part of the story that, that we always tell, we always tell the downfall, we tell how we get good, but nobody ever really goes in depth to tell about the day-to-day, -day, how I pick myself up every single day, how I did this. You know, we always get the sprint up. I fell down, I got up, I dusted myself off, then I got better, I fell one more time, then I got good. So it was only that simple. <laughs> you know, I, I was a loner when, when I, when I got sober and, you know, and when I continue on with my life, I'm very independent. And I say that because of the spiritual connection I have, I'm very mindful of the belief system that I have in my mind. And so things that I've done to stay sober along the way is, and, and just in general, right, is music is a huge thing for me. I believe in that we are vibrational beings. And I know when I listen to a super sappy song, I'm going to be bawling by the end of it. Or if I listen to something super powerful, I'm going to be killing it in the gym and lifting at this great weight, right? So that also worked for my emotions, 
So I would always, I would listen to things that encouraged the, the connection between me and this higher being. And that ultimately was just like this snowball effect. Another thing I learned to do very uncomfortably, but was to actually get like-minded friends, specifically women who had been through the same things I'd been. And that's scary because of that trust factor. Um, and I am a very strong meditator. I spend time in the morning. I sit in stillness sometimes. Sometimes I listen to a guided meditation. Sometimes I journal. Whatever it may be, I have that time for myself. And I think um, also I, with the bodybuilding, I, I have to be mindful of what am I putting into this body of mine? Because it's like a car. If I buy a Porsche and put really crappy gas into it, it may look good, but it's going to run like crap. And right. so that's the way I look at this. It's like, okay. And by the way, this is not going to stay in that solid form of a Porsche for the rest of its life. So we need to put good things in this body, you know, and so that it runs well, my brain is clear, you know, and, and those are just little basic things. I didn't realize how powerful um, they really were until I actually started doing them. Okay. Now you get out here, you um, start getting yourself feeling good. What time in life did you decide that it was time to write a book? You know, I had shared bits and pieces of my story, of course, with friends is, you know, you having conversation or whatnot. And I'd heard numerous times, girl, you just got to write a book. Like, this is pretty, this is pretty crazy stuff. I'm like, it's just life, right? This is the only reality I ever knew. So it wasn't outlandish. It was just what it was. So year after year, it's, you know, I kept, I kept having those, we'll say thoughts in my mind that, you know, you need to. And so uh, bits and pieces, this happened over a course of almost years. I would start writing in a document. My biggest thing was like, how do I get all of this out there? Like what vein can I get there? Do I need to blog? Do I need to do podcasts? Do I need to write a book? Do I need to, you know, what, how do I get this out there? And so I tried all these different avenues. I went to a writing workshop, which was a complete failure. And, you know, then I've gone and, you know, write documents and just keep collecting them because there's this urgency that I kept having that it's got to come out. And then after being able to put together the timeline, I reached out uh, the late of last year and probably in December. And that's when I met Marlena and we hit this like lightning January. We started every week. We had a, a zoom meeting and we put this book together in six months. Oh, wow. Yes. It was on light. It was lightning speed, but it was, it, it was organic. It was supposed to be. And so we were just right in flow with what was supposed to be happening. So you didn't experience any writer's block with this because it, it was kind of periodically it was self basically it was self-help that you were doing prior by writing things and getting things organized. So did you experience any writer's block or anything or I did when I had when I pushed it, when I try to push my creativity into some sort of box, right? Like blogging. OK, I would look at this blank document and be like, well, what do I write? So for me, that wasn't my authentic vein. Mine is doing what we're doing right now. We're, we're, we're connecting and we're communicating. And so that's really what Marlena and I did. And so together, I would just tell my story. And that's how it unfolded. 
So I just, again, I have to be very mindful. Like, is, am I, I call it pressing, am I pushing a wet noodle is really what <laughs> it feels like. Like, am, is this really, is this really happening? Am I getting a lot of resistance here? Um, Cause when I don't and I'm right in line, it happens effortlessly. Okay. Now, once you start writing books uh, or just writing in general, you start seeing elements inside these books. Like you'll see like the one thing that we tackle once we get older, because everyone, and I say this, it doesn't matter your age, but I'm going to say at least 30 and higher, we start tackling the mental health portion of what we're doing in life. And it comes out in our expression. It comes out in my podcast and it comes out in your writing. Could even come out in the pose that you're doing when you're bodybuilding. What points did you start real? I mean, what points did you see inside your book, like mental health, women empowerment, acceptance? What type of themes did you start seeing as you were going along with this? You know, it's really interesting because to tell my story is one thing for me to write my story would be another thing, but to have another individual in that whole process and then to read those words is a profound experience so as I'm reading the words, I'm realizing this woman is incredibly strong, very, very resilient, right? And then to start seeing like the female empowerment, well, that just happened pretty much since day one, you know, that drive to keep going, keep going, you know, mental health. Well, let's face it. It's attached to my body. It's going to be affected, you know, no matter what, what, no matter what, right? Yeah, I could, I could have been in a perfectly, you know, healthy family, and still have that. These are programs, the things that I see and, and believe in. That's, that's my mental health, you know? And so then to realize then that I could actually change it. And that's what I saw as I was, you know, putting the book together and realizing, first off, the, the, the miraculous uh, sp space of transitioning from the first part of life to second part of life is still mind-blowing to see how, how profound that really was. And then now, ultimately, as I'm moving forward, how can I function through the eyes of love and acceptance? Super hard. I don't accept a lot of things. In fact, it doesn't mean that I like it. I just have to accept it. Right. So the, 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 it's the process of all of this. And then, of course, to see the bodybuilding in it all was like, I'm really stronger than I thought. So it was an amazing experience. I had no idea, no idea that it was going to happen. Okay. Now, inside the show, something that I do, because I, I spoke about it earlier, about the journalistic integrity. Growing up, I watched the news magazine. It used to come on Friday nights. It was called 2020. You had Diane Sawyer on there. You had John Stossel. He was a comedian. John Stossel, you could kind of just throw him away because I really didn't need him. But you had someone on there. It was a lady named Barbara Walters. Barbara Walters, it'd be about 1040 at night. And I know you remember because everybody watched 2020 at some point. At 1040, she would start her interview. And somewhere in between that interview, sometimes it would run over past 11.05. That's when it was probably something pretty good. It would it, Sometimes it would run a little bit into the, the 11 o'clock news. But the one thing that Barbara Walters did was she asked certain questions just to get a little bit deeper. And it wasn't that she was intrusive. It was kind of like she was like the aunt that you would talk to, that you would tell her things that she wouldn't tell anybody else. So I always like to pay uh, homage to her and Diane Sawyer because Diane Sawyer would set her up with a mediocre interview before she, to me, she had better interview skills than Barbara Walter, but 2020 was Barbara Walter's baby. So 
it's it's time to put you on the hot seat. It's time to do our 2020 questions. Are you ready? I am ready. <laughs> Ari Jules, inside your book, there's all kinds of things that go on in there. There's violence, drugs, rape. Uh, alcoholism is, is a major topic. So when you stopped the alcoholism, like because alcoholism um, is a disease, in my opinion, it may not be in your opinion, but I believe that it's a disease and it. And it's a, something that you may stop, but it's something you have to get over with every single day. It just doesn't go away. There's no medicine to stop it. It's just mental focus and the pursuit of a certain type of happiness that you can't find in alcohol. So day 30 of you not having a drink, what's, what stopped you from not getting a drink on day 30? The first thing that comes to mind is that I went to that meeting every day. And by doing that, I listened to other people, which means that I didn't feel alone. And that also meant that I was feeling a sense of love. Alcohol wasn't the problem. Alcohol was my solution. The problem was the trauma, the upbringing, the misguidance, and the lack of love. So those first 30 days, I felt amazing. I could smell again. I could taste food. I wasn't angry when the sun came out. I mean, it was a very joyous time. And then we celebrate it with a chip to top it off. So I got birthday cake. I mean, <laughs> it was wonderful. <laughs> it was wonderful. But I think that's really what took place is it, it, it is that my heart started to open. And of course, they, they teach us things. We, we, we learn, we learn discipline, you know, pray in the mornings and say, thank you at night, you know, um, do a meeting, read some literature, you know, there, there's things that we did to, to encourage that connecting and that understanding of what was really going on and that it is a disease. I'm not a bad person. I'm a person with a bad disease. Big difference. Okay. Now, my favorite musician growing up was Luther Vandross. And um, he touched on something that I learned about early on. My father passed away when I was eight years old. And the reason that I'm about to tie this all together, there was a song about uh, a house is not a home without love. With, without love. Um, and I see so many times, and I even see it to this day, like I, I see families that are together. But like you said, it's that unspoken love that you don't know. Like I knew that from my dad when I was eight years old and I knew it better when he was gone the eight years later, just thinking about it. Like, you know, I came from a place, you know, where we were taught to say, I love you uh, and to express it in your acts and different things like that. And I, I noticed like, I'm not going to say, I can't even put a statistic to it, but I'm going to just say maybe seven out of 10 people I know grow up in a house with no love growing up like that and not knowing that to me is the worst tragedy that can happen to anyone and obviously it happened to you in some extent or maybe to a full extent when did you realize that you came from a home with no love that really wasn't until recently and i think it's because when we're born into situations like that we adapt and we adapt very quickly. And so we don't realize that there's absence of love. It's just as it is. And it took me going through uh, that sobriety process 
to actually the first time I ever saw a man cry was 35 years old when I was in the rooms watching a man cry because he had lost his wife and children through the divorce. I have never at that point, never saw that sort of emotion. So I, I, I and I, I do believe in my heart of hearts that we come into this world as love. I think it just at that, the first stage, because that was like, kind of like the learning curve, we'll say I, it was just protected and it was protected with all that armor, things that kept me to, to, to live, to survive. And so now as it comes out, you know, as I'm on the other side, it just keeps getting bigger and bigger. So I don't think it's ever been totally absent. I think that it just wasn't expressed and that's all I knew. There was never a question about it. All right. I like that answer. Cause you know, like, like I say, this like when I learned about it and I seen people later on, I, I wasn't, I'm not any type of licensed therapist or anything like that, but I would pull people to a side in life and just kind of talk to them about hearing this and that and listen to their story. I wouldn't tell them that they came from anything like this, but then I would, it would it explain how they get how they had to get gratification from other things. Um, and that was like the key thing. Like even at I'm 36 now at 36 today, like I, I know that. So I'm like, man, this person is doing this and this and acting like this because they were needing gratification because this or this happened and there was no love in there in the house. So in that time period up until 35, what acts did you have take place? Like that you like for gratification, not anything graphical, but like, you know, like sometimes it would be certain type of attention grabbing. I would see some people like I had a friend that was wealthy that acted poor because mm -hmm. they didn't, they would come, you know, hang out in the bad areas of Virginia or West Virginia, wherever I was at. And they would act like they were not lower class because everybody's equal, but they would act outside of their pay grade. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and that reminds me of when people will act out, you know, they'll look for attention, but in a negative way. Right. So I think back about how did I how did I find my love, in other words. Right. Yes. Um, and, you know, again, initially it was staying very quiet and to myself. That was really the best place. But I, I remember like I I think being a woman or a, a girl through teenage years being a product of sexual abuse, that is the way I saw love. And so if that gave me the attention, even though it wasn't positive attention, that gave me attention and somebody was, was wanting my time and somebody wanted to spend, you know, talk with me and all of that was a sense of love to me. So you bring that into my teenage years. Well, then I just, well, I just amplify that. So then that's where I became very promiscuous because this is the way, well, this is the way we love. This is the way we connect. We have sex and we have a lot of sex and, you know, and, and that's the way it was. And then as I got into, I, I was a topless dancer. And then I realized that this was also power, which also then was also a form of self-love because I lacked that growing up as well. So it's really interesting, like, as you're saying, like, you kind of pull this apart and you look at like, how do you, how do you love? How do you find that love? And it's, it, it's almost, it, it, it makes me feel shameful, right? To think like, oh gosh, but I know in my, in my, in my heart of hearts that it, it, I was being my true self, but in society's world, that's completely shamed 
but really I was just surviving. So it's interesting that you brought that up. I don't think I've ever, I've never thought about that before. Well, 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 because I spend it like this, like, um, no matter about anyone's, uh, demographic or, or binary non-binary but everyone has a certain type of conquest sexually and stuff right and growing up and going to school and stuff like that we all have vices that we start putting into that that, that sexual innuendo that we're going through and i even seen it as a an adult up until like 25 we all had certain things that we did to get the attention, to get the type of energy we wanted from that, because not saying the actual expression of what happened in sex, but if you put off a certain type of vibe or certain energy, you're going to get a certain type of feeling and it'll go from there. So like, even looking back on that now, like retrospect, I'm like, wow, I did this. And this is like someone's wife or husband or whatever later on down the road. And it's kind of shameful, but I'm glad that I know that's what I did then and how to correct that and um, to have a discipline to that now. Um, and I think that's the key thing that we all lacked at times was the discipline. You also have empathy. Like that stage you just talked about, like the mask we all put on during that, you know, hanging out at the parties or whatever. Yes. Like that phase right there. I get it. Right. Because that was something else I learned in, in those rooms of recovery. I was like, what you guys, put, you guys put on a show too. Like I thought we were the ones that were just, you know, acting all cool or whatnot. And they're like, Oh no, girl, we were lying just like you were. It's like, so it's a phase we go through. I don't know if it's just the American thing or not, but now it's like, you have empathy because that, that was part of the, the growing process. You didn't stay there. So I think that just to be able to look back and be like, yep, <laughs> I did that. And so did a lot of other people. Thank you. Yes. <laughs> and, 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 and I tell you, we're all grown here and, I'm, and this is not taking away from the conversation, but it's like, you know, some of the things I did, I'm kind of questioning like now, cause I'm like, Hey, Wow. And, you know, you just move on from there. Now, getting on to the Barbara Walters question, and this is the this is a tough, tough question. All right. Um, and it's got a few parts to it. You've lived your life. You've uh, did everything that you wanted to up until a point. So let's see, because Pittsburgh, not far from West Virginia, we use that as an example. So you're in Pittsburgh. You left West Mifflin or Mifflin and come over to Pittsburgh you see this billboard and it says jewels on it. What is advertised on there today about you? And that's a tough one. You know, because so much has been about the book, right? Um, there's one particular picture that I have and it's me in like this white top. And, you know, it's kind of like, I'm in kind of like, a, I mean, it's a business top and, you know, I, it, it, you know, it, it shows power yet feminine it shows like love it's an example that we don't have to follow the norms um and really yeah there's no words on that billboard except that name it's 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 really you know they say a picture is worth a thousand thousand words um or ten thousand hundred thousand whatever it may be but that's really what it is is that there's no words to that it's it's just that very powerful feminine woman um yeah gosh what would yours say mine would just say 
time. That's it. Just time. <laughs> I took I took time and I stopped things because sometimes we get moved too fast in life. Now, <laughs> this is where it gets more edgier and a little bit more artistic. John Mellencamp is going to write a song for you. John Mayer is going to write a song for you. Sarah McLaughlin is going to write a song for you. What are the titles of those songs? Well, the first one... And that's John Mellencamp. Yes, it's going to be something like he's like twanging on a, you know, like on some sort of, I just see him as such like a, a country type of back, back 40s type of guy. So he's going to be talking about like the good old days. Um, and maybe that will be the good old days of when alcohol was fun. When alcohol was fun. The middle guy, I don't know who that is. You got to give me a. You don't, you don't know who John Mayer is? I don't. Give me a song. Your body is a wonderland. Um, oh, him. Oh, well. Gosh, what is he going to write about? Um, he's going to write a song about elegance. Okay. The beautiful divine, the elegant woman, you know. Yes, absolutely. And then, and then Sarah McLaughlin. She's going to cry me a river and she's going to tell me. <laughs> she, in fact, there's one of her songs that used to really make me cry. Um but she is going to be the one that talks about the insides, the feelings, my emotions, that pain, yet she still keeps getting up. You know, that resilience. That's what she's going to that's what she's going to sing about. OK, and that's real positive. And the reason I ask that is because those are three totally different people in totally different spectrums of music, but they're relatable because it's all elevator music. If you're an ele elevator, you'll hear a song by any, any of the three. <laughs> Okay, so going forward, Barbara Walters would come with something very hard-hitting. So I'm going to have a statement, and I want you to tell me when this was in your life. The statement is this. I will act on what I feel and deal with the emotions later. I'll repeat it one more time. I will act on what I feel and deal with the emotions later. What time period of life was that? were you at? In my drinking and drugging. Totally. Totally. Yeah, it's like, I will act now and pay the consequence later. Now, in between this time, um, your attitude changes. You um, get more emphasis on yourself. And I'm not talking about the, 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 the spectrum of self-esteem, but I'm talking about like you, you start seeing things and you, you see this um, vase that was broken and that you can take glue and you can put back together. And the imperfections that are there are what make you who you are today. What piece of that vase was the hardest piece to put glue on? I think it was my heart. My heart. You can, I think you can only break that so many times and it doesn't have to always be in a romantic way. Um, that hope that I talked about earlier and that lack of that hopelessness that does, a, that does a lot to a heart. So I think putting the glue back on to bring that back together would probably be the hardest piece. Okay. I mean, that's powerful. Yeah. And, and that's the end of my 2020 questions. Those okay. questions are pretty, they're pretty in depth. They, you know, they're all, <laughs> they're, they're, they're pretty much just like kind of off the radar and they, they get a glimpse of you. And that last one just, you know. Yeah. yeah. 
Yeah, and it, and it kind of makes you feel good about yourself because after you're done with those questions, you're like, wow, they were they're not they weren't that deep, but they just they hit a different string. And exactly. that's why I like and that's yes. why I like to ask them and I always tell people if you get a chance to go back and watch the old 2020, look look and see how all three of these people played out in there. And, and I don't do anything with John Stossel because like I said, he's a comedian. Now, Jules, we come to a part in this uh show where I'm gonna get you to plug your website one more time because we have listeners that'll come in at different points yeah and we call it the shameless plug could you plug it and then after that could you tell the audience about people in the background that have helped you because we all do everything on our own to a degree but we all have people that help us in the background like me i'm a pinocchio i got somebody that that does the strings and everything you know there's more than just me behind the scenes so could you go ahead and do that plug where you where they can find you and then the people that are behind the scenes that you want to give a shout out to. So the website is themakingofawoman.com. You'll find everything, all of the social media channels, all the various events. And the <laughs> my team, even just in the bodybuilding alone, it takes my trainer, my posing coach, my massage therapist, my, you know, my, my, my dietitian, my husband, you know, that is just a little nutshell. Um, but it really, my friends are really big, really big part of who I am because my mental health is very important to me without that. I don't function well. Um, and so I'm very mindful of who are my friends within the circle and what are they feeding me? So it's my friends who are my, now my family and my husband, he's an amazing supporter. And then you know, technically, I mean, I've got amazing marketing team who does all of the work behind the scenes to make this all look flawless. <laughs> thank God for her and her team. <laughs> okay. And I want to thank you very much for coming on West Virginia and commonplace. And the, the good thing that happens here is you hear from people, you get their story. Um, they get a little insight uh, inside the show notes. They'll be able to find all kinds of extra information that we did not talk about. Um, they'll be able to link up with you. You'll be able to broadcast every single thing about yourself that you want to be allowed out there. But one thing that no one ever puts on their website, they never put inside their book, is this one simple thing. What is your motto? Because people will put a little stance and say this. They'll put a little quote. They'll say life is great or life is good because I stopped doing this, 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 and that. But what is your motto? Everybody misses that when they're doing something. They, they go through and they do everything else, but their motto. So we have one. My personal motto is you're exactly where you're supposed to be, doing exactly what you're supposed to be doing. Keep going. That's my personal mantra. Um, the other one we have is, and do you have it on, you, on your site? Do you have it in front of you? Um, not right now. No. So it is um, something to the point of seek the light despite the darkness. Always keep searching for the light despite the darkness. Because I think we all get in those dark times and that's, that's really where the character is built. Okay. I like that. Now let me give you one. Okay. Um, don't measure yourself by what you have accomplished, but by what you have, but, but, I mean, excuse me, but by what you should have accomplished with your ability. That's from John Wooden. Okay. John Wooden is a, is a very famous basketball coach for UCLA. 
Mm-hmm. He um, took a took a quite a few championships with Kareem Abdul-Jabbar by another name back then, um, and he's a very strong person. So here's my quick testament to you, Joel. It's amazing what you've done thus far, and you have so much more to do. Mm-hmm. It's a pleasure to hear someone's story, just in little tidbits, because you have a book, so we want people to get in there and read and learn more about you. Um, but it's the the one part of life that we're not taught, and that's called the embracing period. We there's no counseling for that. There's no type of signs behind it. You get hit, you get beat by things. You have to embrace it at some point. There's some people that are boxers that take hits all their lives, and they're proverbial whatever, and they don't they don't do anything about it. But you decided to take time in your life and do something about what was ailing you, what was holding you in a certain stance, not in a bubble, but just in a stance. Mm-hmm. You broke that stance, got a new pose and went on with life. So that's a testament to you. And I want to thank you for sharing your story with everyone, because that's the, that's the type of stuff that gets other people out the bed in the morning. That's the type of stuff that now with the access of all the communications we have, someone can truly get your story beyond the means of um, how we used to get stories. Yeah. So, so Jules, I definitely want to take you tell you, thank you for that. And then your perseverance. Perseverance is a thing just like charisma. It can't be taught. It can't be bought in a store. It can't be manufactured anywhere. Things have to happen for you to get these things. Yeah. So your perseverance is what your book sells. Your perseverance is what teaches people how to mentally focus, how to stay inept in who they are while finding who they are. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I want to thank you for that. These are beautiful words. I appreciate that. Thank you. Because you're right. It's not just another story of a girl getting sober it's so much more. And I appreciate that you have the eyes to see that because you're right. So many times it's overlooked. Yes, ma'am. <laughs> so once again, um, I am JR from West Virginia and commonplace. I am signing off and Jules one last time, let the audience hear a great goodbye from you. And they will, it won't be a goodbye for long because you all will be interacting with her. Grab her book. She has numerous um, opportunities to get in touch with her over at her website. Once again, I'll get her to plug. Themakingofawoman.com. And you can head over there and you can find out all kinds of information. Once again, this is JR and I'm signing off. (laughs) 